before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. The finals are upon us. Tatum, Curry, Brown, Thompson, Smot, Poole, Horford, Wiggins. BetOnline is the place to stop for all of your odds, bets, props, parlays, all of the gambling action for basketball's championship round. Use our promo code BLEAV. B-L-E-A-V to get a 50% welcome bonus when you sign up with the link in the description to this episode. Bet online, where the game starts. Good afternoon or good night. However, and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy Podcast Live. On the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it's a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is May 31st. According to my count, it may not be that according to your count, but we appreciate you stopping in however and whenever you may be listening. We are going to have part two of our conversation with Walter Mitchell and Joe Camo from last week here on today's episode of the podcast. If you didn't hear them last week on Wednesday, they did a fantastic podcast talking about sports fandoms and psychologies and me talking about being a loser and doing a little social experiment because Joe Camo is a sociology professor and YouTuber. So it was a fun experiment they had. Both of them covered the Arizona Cardinals. It was a great conversation. We devolved into talking about football a little bit after the fact. It was very fun. I thoroughly enjoyed it. We'll have the second part of that two-and-a-half-hour podcast that we did coming up here today. I wanted to start off the podcast by mentioning that we recorded it last week so that I can bring in the fact that Jeff Gladney, the corner for the Arizona Cardinals, died on Monday at the age of 25 years old, and this would be commentary where Walter and Joe would add their thoughts and prayers to the situation as they did on Twitter um, for the family going through this tragedy. And I wanted to just unpack this situation a little bit and just kind of take you guys inside my head a little, because when I heard the news that Jeff Gladney had died and was going through the coverage of how people were discussing this, I found a macro-level issue that I found to be disappointing and intriguing while talking about this situation. And when there is a tragic event around sports, which often involves death or a harm to another person, those are the things that we think of as tragedies in our society— When there are tragic events, I tend to move towards the macro level think points and conversations and perspectives that we can have around this issue. And the thing that I've learned over the years is that 
This is an incredibly tragic situation. The death of a loved one is something that is going to be mourned by the family and the people who are close to Jeff Gladney, most vocal of which is going to be Jalen Rager, because Jalen Rager is a former teammate of his and also a high-profile athlete in the NFL. And so this is a tragic situation, and I know I mentioned it with sports. This applies to broader society as well. We talked about the Sacramento mass shooting uh, a few weeks ago, and I waited a few days to really break down that point so that the tragedy had passed through. And we talked about the Uvalde, Texas mass shooting last week. We talked about the Deshaun Watson case dozens of times. We did macro-level conversations twice about Henry Ruggs and him killing a woman and her dog in a high-speed car crash in Las Vegas. We've talked about these situations on macro-level issues while doing the best to acknowledge that this is an incredibly tragic situation for the family and people who are close to Jeff Gladney. It is not a tragedy for me, and it is a tragedy for someone else. These are not mutually exclusive points of view. It can be a tragedy and also not tragic at the same time. I view this as the prism of death, and if you move a macro-level perspective out, I could talk about how a million people have died as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and things of those sorts, and detract from the tragedy itself and just blow past that and move to a macro-level conversation. I don't want to do that because I don't want to diminish that this is a tragic situation and it is far more important that this person has lost their life at 25 years old and was getting their second chance similar to the way we talked about Dwayne Haskins a month ago for very different reasons. Are we talking about getting a second chance? In the exact same context, we have the death of a young person getting a second chance in life in a high-profile career to better themselves and set themselves up for years to come. And with Jeff Gladney, there is an easy place to turn because there's really only one other thing most of us know about Jeff Gladney. Or two, if you want to count the fact that he was a first-round pick in the 2020 NFL Draft. And he was a football cornerback. But there's one other big thing that people remember about Jeff Gladney, or knew about Jeff Gladney, prior to his death on Monday. And this is the difficult place that I wanted to put this at because is it right to address this part of Jeff Gladney's life in the immediate aftermath of his death? There isn't a great way to talk about this and talk about Gladney and this macro-level conversation that I think is really important, and this is the time to have this conversation because you have the most attentive voices in a news cycle that's incredibly unfair, and next week we'll move past Jeff Gladney the same way they move past Dwayne Haskins after Thoughts and Prayers, and the same way we move past the Uvalde, Texas shooting after putting out Thoughts and Prayers for a week, and the news cycle continues with new stuff. This is a really shitty situation that we find ourselves in here where there's an important macro level conversation to be had about this Jeff Gladney situation and there isn't a great way to talk about Gladney without at one point at the bare minimum one point sounding like we are condemning a dead person so is it better to just not address the situation because it is a very very tragic situation or be as intellectual as possible 
while respecting the tragedy. And I'm trying to, to go back and forth with this in my head. That's kind of what the last five minutes have been about in terms of putting the context forward in saying that this is not about the tragedy being diminished if we want to have a macro level conversation about another important issue that if you don't view this situation as a tragedy is very very important in terms of how society will learn from Jeff Gladney's life and continue forward to improve and create a better world i am of the belief that both respecting the tragedy and discussing broader macro level issues can be achieved with effective communication and good preparation if we do these two things right it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive points which is diminishing tragedy or i'm sorry respecting tragedy or bringing forth effective talking points on a macro level issue of society that are less important than death it doesn't have to be a this or that thing it can be we respect the tragedy and talk about macro level issues with respect to jeff gladney because there is something that i found incredibly disheartening in the aftermath of his death that are important to acknowledge in terms of bettering people around this situation and maybe it requires waiting a couple days to talk about it i've done that in the past with larger mass shootings or, or things that society deems larger tragedies i think this is the best context to talk about this macro level issue with jeff gladney and hopefully i have prepared enough and if, and will be able to effectively communicate the point about jeff gladney in addition to respecting the fact that this is a tragedy for people who know him and it's I mean, even the minnesota vikings if we bring it back to a football point the minnesota vikings made their statement about how tragic this situation was when the minnesota vikings were the team that cut gladney back in august of 2021 and it's a classic corporation saving face because they're reading the room and seeing correctly that a tragic death at 25 years old supersedes the secondary situation that we're about to talk about here that's the pretty much the only other thing people know about jeff gladney so again i am of the belief that we can achieve respecting the death and the tragedy around this situation hopefully the last 10 minutes have been able to effectively communicate my thought process in my mind because i went back and forth a lot about whether or not to just scrap this and just talk about something more lighthearted and, and do the preparation there but i decided doing the 40 minutes of preparation and thinking around this topic i guess on my free time but i really do treat this like a job because it helps with preparation and repetitions and being able to talk about this stuff taking the 40 minutes to prepare and hopefully being able to effectively communicate to you guys will be able to achieve both because i believe both can be achieved respecting tragedy and effectively communicating a macro level societal issue that is incredibly prevalent right now because the jeff gladney story will only be in the news cycle for one day in april of 2021 jeff gladney was arrested in dallas after allegedly assaulting a former girlfriend he was charged with domestic violence by impeding breathing after allegedly quote 
intentionally, knowingly, and recklessly causing bodily injury and applying pressure to the woman's neck and throat. The altercation grew out of an argument and took place over a span of more than two hours, according to the lawsuit the woman filed in 2021 against Gladney. She also alleged in the lawsuit that he tried to bribe her and intimidate her into keeping quiet. In August of 2021, Jeff Gladney was indicted in Dallas on these charges and was brought to a trial. If Gladney had been convicted of these charges, he could have faced up to 10 years in prison under Texas's domestic violence laws. And as soon as an indictment was brought upon Gladney, the Minnesota Vikings released him one year after being a first-round pick and starting 15 games for the Vikings as a rookie. In March of 2022, which was just about two months ago, Jeff Gladney was found not guilty by the te- by a jury in Dallas on felony assault charges. The verdict ended up being unanimous, and Gladney was then signed five days later by the Arizona Cardinals. So Gladney was out of football during the 2021 season while he was facing charges, and I assume Gladney did not get the bulk of his money as a result of violating the personal conduct policy that you sign when you engage in contract talks. And similar to the Deshaun Watson situation, the framing of Jeff Gladney being found not guilty was that the case the woman brought upon Gladney was false. Which goes against the idea of what a not guilty verdict means. Being guilty means that it is proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are guilty. That it is 100% certain that you are guilty. Being found not guilty does not mean that you are 100% innocent. It means that there were not enough there was not enough evidence to convict and remove someone's freedoms. And the framing of this by disingenuous people was based around the fact that Gladney was wrongly convicted or I'm sorry wrongly charged for this situation and that he is the victim of losing a year of his career as a result of an extortion attempt, which in a high-profile case where Gladney is a football player, it diminishes the woman coming forward to bring charges against Gladney and deters women in the future from bringing accusations forward against powerful men. And again, we're talking about this within the context of a heteronormative relationship. There are also men bringing accusations against men, women bringing accusations against women over domestic violence and situations of those sorts. I'm just speaking about this in the context of male perpetrator, female victim. And the framing of that situation was brought up again after Gladney died because people were talking about how it was additionally tragic that he had lost a year of his career and then didn't get the chance to have a quote-unquote second chance because he was wrongfully losing a year of his NFL career and then died before he gets a chance to have a second chance. And I felt that was incredibly painful because 
it's people being disingenuous around this situation, knowing I mean, either willful ignorance or just being disingenuous and saying and, and knowing that a not guilty verdict does not mean that nothing happened. A not guilty verdict legally means that Jeff Gladney did not have a situation, did not have without any reasonable doubt the evidence to convict him and take away his freedoms. When if the charges had been non-sufficient and made up, this case never would have gone to trial because it requires a certain level of evidence to even get an uh, to even get an arrest to turn into an indictment. And so there was some sort of altercation and evidence is incredibly difficult to prove in these types of cases as we saw with the Deshaun Watson case and with the Trevor Bauer case recently. And these are just high-profile cases. We have stories on down the line. It's incredibly difficult to even get to an indictment point. And so it's the easiest way, because of how the legal system is set up, to dim- dismiss the woman who brings these accusations forward. And it felt really disingenuous that that false information was then being spread in the wake of his death when everyone is talking about Jeff Gladney again. And I was really, really disappointed that that was a conversation that had to be had around his death, is that people pointed out how tragic it was. And some of these people didn't have uh, profile photos or large amounts of followings on Twitter. Some people were credible journalists, and some people were just verified people on Twitter being disingenuous. But still, the fact that this was happening was really bad because... It diminishes the woman who brought forward this case against Gladney, even if an indictment wasn't filed, because additionally, the case going to trial suggests a level of evidence being there in the first place to possibly move towards a conviction, and the fact that there was a pending $1 million civil suit against Gladney, which, for people who don't know, a civil suit, you just have to be proven culpable and not guilty, and you pay out financial damages. In this case, they were petitioning for a million dollars. If the case had ended up getting to a point where there was a verdict in favor of the woman, perhaps they would have negotiated down the um, the settlement. And at the same time, we'll never know that because the death happens in advance. And so this is a really, really terrible situation where this has to be addressed in the wake of his death because false information about the case of a domestic violence situation with a high-profile player is being spread across the internet the same way that it's happening around the Deshaun Watson situation and Trevor Bauer situations and other similar type situations. And it's especially problematic because for the Monday and Tuesday that this is going to be a news story, Everyone who is around the NFL is going to be circulating around this story. It's the biggest news story in the sport for the day. And unfortunately, that type of information is going to be spread because it's going to be the only mention of Jeff Gladney because only people who are really, really out to push forward an agenda are bringing up the fact that Jeff Gladney was accused of domestic violence and was brought to trial and was still facing a pending civil suit before he was signed by the Arizona Cardinals. And really disingenuous people were bringing that information forward as a way to dissuade, I mean, as a way to further an agenda to help protect men in these similar situations and at the same time 
put being disingenuous in talking about Gladney being a victim again in that situation when the real victim is probably the person who brought those charges against Gladney. Now, we can't say for certainty if that was the case, and I don't know the details of the trial itself. Very little is available on the internet, and perhaps that's a blind spot of mine. I acknowledge the fact that that's the case. I'm only basing it off the fact that if there was a false accusation filed in this situation, it probably would not have gone to trial, because in order to go to trial, there has to be some measure of credibility to the accusation and in the state of texas especially which isn't the greatest at handling these situations of domestic violence you have a situation where something definitely happened and it appears something definitely happened being proven through the trial there just wasn't enough evidence to remove gladney's freedoms and convict on the basis of felony domestic violence and felony assault uh, in in the state of texas so that is the part that I wanted to discuss as well, in addition to giving thoughts and prayers to people who are affected by that tragedy. It's a tragic situation for some, and I don't want to diminish that part at all at the same time. And hopefully, my preparation was just in this case. Also, one of the big uh, articles around this was ESPN's report on Gladney being arrested and released by the Vikings and ESPN News Service's report from March 10th about Gladney not being found not guilty on felony assault charges. I copied one of those um, stories to the description of this episode as well. If you want to read more about that, it's really the only things that were available on this case with Jeff Gladney was the ESPN News Service report. So there wasn't much to work with there in terms of figuring out details of the case itself. Hopefully, that my preparation was was done well, and I was able to effectively communicate this point while not diminishing the tragedy at the same time. Both don't have to be mutually exclusive, and that is the situation that I wanted to hopefully effectively communicate to you all around former NFL cornerback Jeff Gladney. So let us transition now into our conversation with Walter Mitchell and Joe Camo. From last week, we, we did the first hour and 20 minutes or so last week. This will be another hour podcast coming at you here today on the show. So if you want to check out the full combined episodes, check out last week's show from Wednesday and this week's show today. There is no easy way to transition here, so I'm just going to hit some transition music and go into the next segment. My voice as Joe Camo does not matter in terms of keeping the team accountable in, in a meaningful way. The, the ownership, what keeps them accountable is profitability <laughs> and any ego they have tied up in being a winner. Um, and winning games makes more money than losing games. So any, anyone who says an owner isn't trying to win, maybe in the short term, they, their team isn't capable of winning and they're trying to, they're, they're trying to, put little in to rebuild but that's still a, a strategy aimed at long-term winning you want to get that earlier pick to draft joe burrow um coaches are trying to win because they want to keep their job and they want to be successful and they're competitive players same thing and like my me being critical doesn't give them more motivation than they already have built in 
but the one thing, like, if you want to say that there is a fan group that keeps owners accountable and teams accountable, it's actually counterintuitively the fair weather fans, quote unquote. I, I don't even like the term, but the, the fans who are not as hardcore committed, the fans who um, will stop watching if the team isn't winning, because that fan, that that population as a group, right? The owners know they are there. And they know if this team isn't winning, those folks are going to stop coming to games, stop buying jerseys, stop buying memorabilia. Um, they're going to stop watching on TV, and our ad revenues uh, locally will be down. It's counterintuitively the fair weather fans that keep teams accountable because that population will stop watching if the team isn't good and money will be down. Not, it's not the people who care <laughs> immensely like I do who keep the team accountable. Um, that's the reality that I think a lot of people don't realize. So my being a, a steadfastly optimistic, no matter what, is not enabling a team because there's a certain percent of the fan base that's going to be like me no matter what, but a large percent that absolutely uh, their their engagement will be a function of whether the team is winning or losing. Well, I want to jump in on that because I, I would offer a respectful um, – rebuttal to that because um my whole raison d'etre as a fan is to try to um let my voice be heard because you know as uh, like i'll give a perfect example is that if the coaches can't see something i'd love it if we could try to point it out to them and as cardinal fans it's so frustrating I mean, I just know this as a fact, as, as a, a physical fact, that Jordan Hicks can't cover running backs one-on-one. -on -one. Just can't. And so it either forces you to play zones, which the Cardinals don't play well, or you're going to just concede that Cam Akers is going to catch a 25-yarder up the sideline. And so when I see mistakes like this or – you know, uh, miscalculations of, of players' abilities and schemes that aren't fundamentally sound. Like, you know, we've watched ad nauseum Chandler Jones being dropped off into pass coverage, and it's just lo and behold, he leaves the building saying, like, he wants to go play for a defense coordinator who will maximize his talents. And I had to, I you know, I have to agree with Chandler there on a third down and long to drop him into pass coverage. It's just outrageous. It's outrageously stupid. And I I'll call it like that because it is. And, you know, as a fan, I want to be heard. You know, if I see something that I think I'm a hundred percent convinced could help the team and I, that someone may call me naive to think that my voice doesn't matter that much, but you know, I think being, um, critical when criti criticism is necessary and helping to form a mindset and an expectation and holding the organization to higher standards. Like for an another example is I'm still ripped off that um, not you know, the way the Cardinals handled, you know, the Josh Rosen situation. It was outrageous. I mean, and if we don't as fans stand up, I mean, 
you know, the way they had him twisted in the wind all that time, knowing pretty much they were going to draft Kyler Murray anyway, the way, way they had him waiting all the way through the draft, then putting him up for trade in the draft, and then you finally trade him, and the GM doesn't even call him. I mean, that's just so outrageous. I mean, I, I just, you know, if if I can't be a voice and a fan to try to enact change, and this is where the rhetorician in me maybe is, you know, is, is comes to the fore because for years I taught rhetoric at, in AP language um, to students. And, you know, I think rhetoric can change the world. I mean, it, uh, there are so many great examples of it. If, if you create a greater consciousness, um, you know, uh, then chances are sooner or later, the more people that, that, you know, agree with this or the more people that you can rally up a cause um, where, um, you know, uh, suddenly there's a social con consciousness that wasn't there previously. And I think the power of the written word and of voices can enact big change. I guess I'm yeah. just a little less convinced that it will enact change to the, the organization. Like, I don't think like, I don't think the coaches are going to, hear or be moved by your or my opinion about Jordan Hicks. I think, I, th <laughs> I think that that message doesn't get to the people who make those decisions. And if it does, I think when you're at those places, you're kind of used to like deflecting or, or just kind of sweeping under the rug, those voices it's when the fans stop showing up <laughs> that, that, that <laughs> people take notice. Now, I'm not saying that those those conversations are are futile because I think folks like you and I, Walter, are, have chosen to kind of engage and be part of this Cardinals fan community, and you know we're very fortunate that there are people who enjoy our work. So, like when you're making those critiques and comments, you're you know about okay, this is what's going on. This particular player is struggling in this area, and this is part of the reason the run defense is not good right, right now. You're 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 both educating and 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 uh, articulating things that some fans are already seeing and kind right. of for validating what they're seeing and creating a space where they where also there can be you know part of being a a big part of being a fan is the ability to have that space to have discourse about your team. So I you know I I'm not certainly wouldn't suggest that I think that what you and I do is like without any value. It's just I'm maybe have a different take on you know i i think maybe there we things you and i say or write might be able to influence or or provide food for thought for fans and how some fans think but i just don't necessarily know that it, that the, the organization is going to make a change in anything they do based on anything i say additionally the two of you have platforms that are larger than say the common fan and yet aren't large enough to institute real change because right. neither of you have a direct line to Steve Kime or neither of you have a direct line to the linebackers coach of the, of the Arizona Cardinals. And so I think to the same point that Walter is correct, that a large coalition of people mm -hmm. bringing their voices together has the power to institute change. It's secondary to a large coalition of people deciding to revoke their dollars I think if they if a large coalition of people decide they're going to not spend money, 
than the corporation, which every individual NFL team operates as a corporation in one large corporation of the NFL. Like, I think if, if that's the first step people take, you're going to see change happen faster and you're going to see change be more effective and swift based on what you want. And that's, I think, part of like rooting for a business and, and just the, how large the NFL has gotten over the past 50 years in that same way that each team now operates in the sense of a corporation and teams only become available for purchase every five years or so. Um, the, the thing that was disheartening for me in that way was like everyone talked the talk about the Washington football team during all of the scandals and the promiscuous activities of Dan Snyder. And then when they released new jerseys at the start of 2022, they were the five highest selling jerseys on NFL.com. And that was disheartening because there's no incentive to change the behavior if you aren't willing to revoke the dollar. And over time, that's changed too. Washington went from one of the most attended stadiums selling out every game to now one of the three lowest attended teams in the NFL, which... We don't know how real those are now because Dan Snyder was lying about revenue sharing. But like it over 20 years, the fandom has disengaged and disassociated. And that's what's going to instigate change as we hear this weekend, like NFL owners are counting votes to try and remove Dan Snyder as owner. And so that's where I think over a long period of time, vocal change wasn't going to to make real meaningful change unless the dollars were behind it also, which is the reason why Washington changed their name in the first place. It wasn't out of the goodness of the heart of the team deciding that their team name was racist. It was FedEx and and their major sponsors were threatening to pull their dollars unless they changed the team name. And so I think that secondary to once you, once you've removed monetary um, I think first and foremost, people should, should act with their dollars. And once you've done that, I think, voicing your opinions and protesting and talking about real change with groups of people is more important to, to creating change after that. Yeah. Um, that was really well said. And, uh, it's a fascinating discussion because, you know, um, I, I think there is a larger purpose for fans being involved and engaging in the daily conversations and, can can a fan base help mold or create a consciousness around the team that the team pays attention to? And um, I can just say from my own end how encouraging it's been at times to hear from former players or hear from parents of players or situations where they've come back to me and said, boy, you were so right about this and um, someone needed to say it. Yeah, I was really struck with uh, the best thing I've heard from a Cardinals player in in ages was last year in the offseason, Buda Baker saying, you know, I'll just say it like it is if some guys weren't doing their jobs. And then in that offseason came this new approach, which I think has gotten the Cardinals, um, you know, uh, building the Cardinals some momentum of, Hey, we want to get, we want to improve our leadership, particularly amongst veterans. And B, we want to get more physical. And I think that's been the, the MO for the organization in the last two years, which gives me, talk about optimism, makes me 
whole lot more optimistic than I was before. But, you know, there are the, one of the things every team has to deal with are the divas, are the guys that, you know, want to play on their own terms. And, you know, I mean, you look at, look at the Rams. Any divas on that team? Odell Beckham Jr. <laughs> <laughs> well, he. Yeah. Uh, Jalen Ramsey. <laughs> well. Jalen Ramsey, I Jalen Ramsey gets disrespected that way, but yeah, because Jalen Ramsey is loud and outspoken, he gets painted as a diva. I mean, I don't mind. I don't it. I'm not. I, yeah. I, I'm. I'm much more neutral about that. But he asked the question. Yeah. And I no. Yeah. Pipe in. It's no, also. And, oh yeah. Ramsey struggled in the playoffs. I mean, um, but you know, and there's a fine line between swag and being a diva too. But and I agree. I mean, I. You know, I'm not into his antics at all. But, um, but did Jalen Aunt Ramsey hold out? Um, did he, you know, make the off season all about him? Did Jalen Ramsey get suspended for six games for Peds? I mean, oh, okay. you know, in the context of Hopkins, yeah, because I was going to say, I think Ramsey. I did a piece on this because the Jaguars, the Jaguars gave Ramsey away for free. It's the worst trade in modern NFL history. Now that it's all said and done, but. He is the guy who showed up in a Brinks truck at one point. And I'm not even saying that's diva behavior. <laughs> I, yeah. I love that stuff. And at the same time, like, I, I don't like when people view divas as like contract talks, but like Jalen Ramsey is a guy who's talked the talk and for the and most part has backed it up. Has walked he, the walk because he's yeah, been an he, all pro. Right. I was going to say he'll walk into the hall of fame if he retires tomorrow as the greatest corner I've ever seen in my lifetime. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Over I, Revis, huh? Yeah, I mean the Revis peak was really good. I Jalen Ramsey's just so good at football. He's the one corner I point to and say he could he could be one of those game-changing type of players at the corner position. I don't think it's quite there just cuz the position he plays is is basically trying to be phased out by modern rules of the NFL and making it more difficult to cover, but Jalen Ramsey Yeah, he was drafted as the most talented cool. prospect in like two years or three years when he was drafted. And then he's three all pros, five pro bowls, you know, Jalen Ramsey's incredibly good. Well, if you look at Tom Brady, for example, people would call him a diva of sorts because of his antics at times. And, you know, when things aren't going well on this and that, but ultimately, you know, Tom Brady's playing for 11 million this year. Okay. And he's done that wherever he's been. Um, and I'm not going to, the whole Giselle thing is irrelevant to me. Um, because, you know, I mean, when, you know, with a guy like Tom Brady, he's willing to sacrifice. Now look at what Cooper Cup's doing for the Rams. You know, in light of all these 30 million a year contracts that wide receivers are getting, and Cup arguably put forth the greatest single season in NFL history as a wide receiver, or certainly one of the top three. And he said, I just want to do something that's fair to me and the team. I mean, that's where you're dealing with the salary cap and you're dealing with the, you know, these are guys that want to win rings. If you really want to ring, win rings, you have to be willing to compromise. Yeah, I, I'm, I have a kind of a kind of a more of a macro kind of economic view of that. And like I. I never expect a player to take less. If they do, I appreciate it. But I, 
I also look at it that, you know, this is all framed within labor and ownership negotiations. And, you know, the salary cap is a measure that by definition is, you know, there to protect the interests of the owners. And, you know, they, they put this into place and that salary cap escalates, you know, every year, but it's still this negotiated percent, um, you know, uh, of the revenues. But the way I look at it is, you know, players maximizing their value puts more pressure on organizations and the league as a whole. So like in terms of this whole labor negotiation, so like if players habitually just took less, you know, quote unquote, to, to let the team build a better team, it makes it easier for teams to build better rosters. Okay. But it also that the challenge that teams face is a point of pressure when it comes to negotiating that collective bargaining agreement. And so I guess I, and I don't know if I make, if I'm <laughs> articulating this well or not, but it's this kind of larger scale thing where it's like that the owners have, have kind of created the structure of a salary cap where we look at the players and put the onus on the players. You're the ones who need to, you know, compromise in order to win, but the ownerships don't have to, you know, the ownerships just get to sit back with that salary cap in place and let the fans complain about how greedy the players are because they won't take less. Uh, but the ownerships can just say, well, it's a salary cap. I can't pay more, you know, and it, they've, they've structurally created a setup where the player, everyone puts that responsibility on the players. If there were not a salary cap, then you could, you know, and I'm not, I'm not necessarily advocating for that because I get what that would do potentially in terms of salaries and, you know, but if there were not a salary cap, then fans could look at both the players saying, Hey, why aren't you willing to take less? And also at the owners, why are you willing to pay more? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. but the, because of the existence of a salary cap, the public opinion is all are mostly focused on the players. So for that reason, like I just, again, this is kind of that sociologist in me. I look at when a player is maximizing and getting as much as they can, that is helping to keep the pressure in those labor negotiations so that the players, so that the owners, you know, have to, if they want to be competitive, you know, kind of keep increasing that cap. Um, so, you know, I know that doesn't, that I get, I get how having someone like Tom Brady, who's willing to pay play for, throughout his career way under market gives a competitive advantage. Um, but just that larger kind of part of me that, that kind of tends to lean in the favor of labor in labor negotiations tends to side with players on this one. Yeah, I, I go in the same direction where over time I've learned to be pro-labor. The Tom Brady thing that's interesting is Tom Brady values the competitive edge over sometimes like 20 to $30 million, and I find that really fascinating. And there's literally never been another Tom Brady ever in sports. <laughs> like, it's weird right. how that one works out. Yeah. And, you know, circling back to something Walter said earlier about like the engagement that he gets from from fans too is like, not always is like writing and, and the, the media that we do here, because we're all different forms of media, but all together, like doing similar types of stuff. Like, it's not always to instigate change. Sometimes it's for storytelling, which I really love to do storytelling around this. And sure. 
sometimes it's it's for entertainment like you know i call it the charles barkley equation which is charles barkley is incredibly entertaining and also he's picked the mavericks to win every game of their series so far so like (laughs) sometimes intellectual analysis can be boring and sometimes entertainment can be not intellectual and you gotta yeah. you straddle that line. How entertaining versus how informative do you want to be? And I've changed on that over the years. I used to say, I want to use my platform to make sports fans a little bit smarter. And I'm like, well, I can do that, but I can also make it entertaining so that people want to engage with it. And it's more fun for me if you make it entertaining. So Absolutely. Like that's that's the balance there. And all of that is what having a nice little platform to talk about and maybe like make a little bit of change on the side is is a pretty cool thing to have. And when you're instigating change, the first thing that's important is dollar value. Cause <laughs> I had to learn that lesson as a child, because uh, when you grow up in San Diego, all your sports teams will leave you and none of them will ever be good. <laughs> and all of your, all the athletes that you worship will die young. Cause it's an incredibly dark San Diego sports curse that we have. So, you know, you learn that at a younger age, like, yeah, this stuff is all kind of dumb and you'll drive yourself crazy when you, invest emotionally when the the Padres who similar to you Joe like I root for the Padres as a way to connect to home like until 2020 in the pandemic and an expanded playoff they never made the playoffs in my memorable lifetime I was four years old the last time they made the playoff <laughs> before 2020 so you root for losers you root for the team that has the worst record in the in I, I've actually now because I live in Sacramento so I root for the Padres who over the last 40 years have the worst record of any major league baseball team and the Kings who in the last 20 years have the worst record of any professional basketball team. So <laughs> it's, it's a weird choice that I've made in that engagement, but it's, it's fun in that way. Like I, I enjoy rooting for losers and I love that. I don't know if you guys saw this cause you guys are more like big football people, but when the Minnesota Timberwolves beat the Clippers in the play in game and they were throwing jerseys and, crying on the court and running around like crazy people. I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Cause I'm like, those people have <laughs> optimism and adjust their expectations to, right. we want to play in game and we're going to stand, we're going to jump up on the table. We're going to throw our jerseys in the crowd. We're going to cry. We're going to hug. We're going to celebrate this thing. Like we just won a championship. Right. And I thought that's really cool. Cause for 30 years, that is their championship. It's only the right. third time in the, the franchise's entire history they've eliminated someone from the playoffs, and it's, you know, even it's if a, it's not really the playoffs. What's kind of unfortunate in my mind is that there there are some fans out there who are fans of you know teams you know that have won lots of championships that will look at that team and say, oh, you guys are a bunch of losers. You're celebrating this. Uh, how <laughs> pathetic. You know, right. you know, we have real championships. And then back of my mind, I'm like, Okay, you're a dude who like is a fan of this team. You didn't win those championships right. and you're but you're some you've got this bravado about how, you know, you're the, you know that you uh, are this winner and these fans who are celebrating this playing game are losers and uh you know it's like you know that 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 somehow accepting that as a cause for celebration makes you a loser. And I'm like, no, it makes you uh, a winner at life who recognizes that life is too short not to enjoy those moments when they come as fleeting as they can be. You have yeah. championships, but I have self-awareness. Right. Like I say, <laughs> I, uh, 
when people say that, I'm like, hell yeah, I'm a loser. I actively choose to root for losers, and I love it. It's great. <laughs> yeah. The poet Emily Dickinson, one of the greatest poems I ever read is, uh, she didn't have titles, but the her, her her first lines were turned into titles, and this one's called Success is Counted Sweetest by Those Who Never Succeed. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, and that's... The profundity and paradoxical aspect of that is fascinating to me. I mean, uh, one of the things that I really appreciated about Joe's essay and what I clung to um, fiercely is, you know, I went back and looked back at the Cardinals' 2021 season, and I saw some historic achievements. I mean, eight and one on the road. I mean, who does – I mean – that's just something I would never, I mean, go back five years ago. I remember Bruce Arians complaining that, you know, about going to the East coast and having to play 10 AM games. And they rarely ever won on the East coast. And ever since Cliff arrived, I mean, East coast games, he's had the team ready and, you know, Joe went to one of them in Jacksonville and, you know, I mean, it, and uh, that game was a nerve-wracking game for me going, and I know everyone thought we were going to, you know, just roll right over them, but I saw that roster and that defense, how fast they are. You know, I was really nervous about it, and you never know from week to week, you know. But, but you know, what's, what's great is that when fans stay loyal, you know, um, despite, you know, all years of ineptitude and losing, and they hang with the team, and then, like like Joe said, and like I'm trying to reiterate, is if you can't enjoy success when it happens, then you're depriving yourself of you know of what's so much fun about sports is that you got to look back and say you know yeah the season ended awful awfully in 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 L A and you know. Um, but I, you know, I was watching that golf yesterday, and I've been saying this for several years now. I mean, closing out games and seasons is the most difficult thing to do in sports. I mean, look at Mito Piera, Pereira yesterday. I mean, with a one-shot lead, the first time he's ever been in that situation. And look at what happened. I mean, that's actually almost what you could expect to happen from from someone who's never been there before. Look at the Bengals, how close they came. Look at the Cardinals against the Steelers, how close they came. They had the lead with two minutes left. Same thing with the Bengals. I mean, you know, I mean, but when you're doing it for the first time and you're the first time and you're such an underdog and getting there, I mean, the odds are at some point the pressure is going to catch up to you or you know, or not being quite ready enough or, you know, not handling the moment, as they say. And that's what makes sports so fascinating. But to say that, you know, today in the papers, they're calling Pereira the Chilean choke. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, oh, my God, that just, I mean, that guy played his heart out and played out of his skull for 71 holes. And was at the, you know, was the best golfer in the field 
and came out of nowhere, and now he's the Chilean choke. And that, that's well, it's, just... the, it's the feel-good story that we all say we love in sports, and then when it doesn't come true, all of a right. sudden you, you feel the obligation to bash someone because you deserve to have that championship or whatever it was. I mean, we do it to like Chris Paul too, and it, you know, it's Chris Paul's been there dozens of times oh, before, and we still terrible to do it, the backlash like... on Chris Paul, just awful. Yeah, I mean, we do yep. the same thing to other people, too. Like, that was just the point I was making there. But for someone who, you know, will probably, uh, again, probabilities, uh, probability is he'll never get that chance again to redeem himself. Like, that part really stinks in terms of, like, you you only sometimes get one chance to, to win it. Or sometimes you get one chance to have the moment and you aren't prepared for it. It doesn't make you a loser. It doesn't make you less successful as long as that's not how you measure. And like you said, if you, if you can't enjoy it, it like science, like <laughs> social science and like scientifically, if you can't enjoy it, the process on the way there, the championship will be diminished in greatness yeah. because Correct. It, it will, this thing that you claim to be, you know, championship culture is something else that's weird in, in fandoms, but like this thing that you claim is the only thing that matters is not as, is not as promising as you think it is. And well, so by nature, you will be disappointed. There's an important point you're making there too, Kyle. Um, you know, and I, I, you know, my background is sociology, but I sometimes kind of, you know, uh, have interest in psychology. I'm not a psychologist, but I, I have a, enough of a background to, to get myself in trouble. And, um, you know, there's this branch of psychology, you know, called positive psychology is kind of the psychology of happiness. And there's this really great documentary called happy, um, that I, that I really enjoy. And it talks about this a bit. And, you know, one, from what I understand, again, I'm not a scholar in this area, but what I understand of like kind of the, the psychology around happiness is we, we, we often have set uh, on a pedestal, these big moments of accomplishment is that, Will, is when I will be happy. When, when right. I, when I, when I achieve this thing, I will then be happy. And whether it be a championship or or a personal goal in your career or personal life, and the psychology of that is actually that those moments are really, you know, really, um, really fulfilling for a short period of time, and then there's almost this postpartum afterwards, like, well, now what? And they the, that 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 enjoyment lasts for a relatively short period of time and true like happiness and contentment is not from a moment like that, but it's rather from the, you know, as cliches as sounds, the journey it's the, it's being in the yes. flow. It's, it's the moments along the way it's, it's, right. it's getting there, you know, like, uh, and you know, for, I'll give just an example something that I really enjoy is doing my YouTube channel. And, you know, and along the way, there are these milestones I set up, you know, in my head, you know, like, oh, you know, a certain number of subscribers, you know, getting to a thousand subscribers was a, a big thing because, and getting monetized and, and it, you know, then getting to 2000 and those milestones are great motivators. But like, you know, when I hit 1000 subscribers, it wasn't like this overwhelming, oh my gosh, this is the happiest I've ever been. The real joy in doing my YouTube channel is on a random Thursday night at 9.20 or 10.20 p.m. when I'm doing a live stream and there's other Cardinals fans in the chat and we're having a conversation and, and 
just that it's the along the way it's yes you know it's it's posting a video that i just worked hard on and watching it and 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 just you know feeling kind of a sense of pride that hey i worked hard on this and i i like the way this has come out and and other people are enjoying this as well yep. those are the moments right it's not the oh when i reach x number of subscribers i will then be happy right and and so similarly, you know, being a, a fan, you know, I mean, I, the only championship I've been able to enjoy is the Diamondbacks championship. And that was a heck of a championship, uh, you know, back in yes. the day, 2001. Uh, and, and one of an all time great world series in terms of just the way it played out. Um, and that was absolutely wonderful, a great experience. But I don't necessarily, when I think about what I, my, my joy as a fan, that that's a, a good experience, but like all the Suns games I've watched and all the, the, the magnificence that was, you know, Steve Nash and, and, you know, Charles Barkley's era and Kevin Johnson and watching the, you know, the Cardinals and all the joy I've had or that are, those are just much bigger, more sustained, you know, sources of joy. So I think we overestimate for a fan the importance of championships or the weight of championships in the fan experience. Agreed. Yeah, I I posted a quote from Dr. Seuss that, you know, let's face it, only one set of fans win the last game. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I can experience that joy. I mean, you know, um, in the playoffs, you know, so. Everybody else goes home um, disappointed and maybe even disillusioned or upset or whatever. But, you know, but I love the Dr. Seuss quote of, you know, don't cry because it's over. Smile because it happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, like you, Joe, that's a choice. I mean, you can dwell and choose to dwell in doom and gloom. And think everything sucked and was a failure, or you can look back and, like Robert Frost said, I'll be telling this with a sigh, ages and ages and ages and ages hence. Um, the two roads diverge, and I took the one less travel by, and that has made all the difference. But why are you telling it with a sigh? Because, and why is the title of the poem, The Road Not Taken? Um, because that's the way life is. Life is, you know, at your end, you're going to be, have a mixture of, of, you talked about the journey, Joe, and you're so right. It's about the journey at the end of the journey there. You know, what, what Frost was saying, which is so profound is that there's going to be, um, a dichotomy of emotions. One's going to be pride for all the accomplishments, like you said on your videos you know, um, but then the other will be a sense of regret, at, you know, because, you know, you can't take two roads at once and, and you know, not everything's going to go your way. And you'll look back with regret on some of the decisions you made in life and some of the situations that were missed by your favorite teams or whatever. But at the end of the day, that those are the two emotions that as, you know, human beings, we're going to, you know, um, balance and try to, and you know, make the choice of which one you're going to try to um, emphasize or choose more. Mm-hmm. 
You know, Joe, something funny is that uh, I had I didn't know like happiness psychology was like an idea, but I actually had something that I've been calling it for years, mm -hmm. which is kind of the same phenomenon that you're talking about as a sports nerd. I've been calling it Kevin Durant psychology <laughs> because Kevin Durant, <laughs> when Kevin Durant left OKC to go to Golden State, everyone destroyed him and totally unfairly, but everyone... Mm -hmm made him to be the villain of the sport and it was great for engagement in the NBA and all that stuff. And Kevin Durant viewed it as when he made the decision, I don't think he even prepared for all the backlash that would come and people never giving him the validation he deserved. But I think Kevin Durant viewed it as all of the negativity, all of the heartache. He talked about after he signed, he, he couldn't leave his bed for like a week because he just couldn't engage with anybody. Like, all of this will be worth it when we win championships. And then they won the 2017 championship, only losing one game in the playoffs. He was like, wait, this is it? Mm, this, yeah. <laughs> this is all there is? And then um, I, I read the book that Ethan Strauss did, and he talked about, like, after they won the championship in 2018, like, Steve Kerr was just glad it was over. Like, mm. the, when they won the second championship, they are just like, this was – so backbreaking, so tormenting. He'd had sur he literally had surgery on his back also, and everyone was at each other's throat, and just no one was happy after they won the championship. They were just like, well, we won, cool, we knew we were going to win, we're just glad that we don't have to see each other for, <laughs> for three months. And it's, it's weird how that works out, because Kevin Durant afterwards is like, was miserable and 2019 was such a weird year because he you know fights with Draymond Green and misses the playoffs and then only when he tears his Achilles and loses the ability to play do people give him the validation of being mm -hmm. the best basketball player in the world and so like Kevin Durant decided I, I don't really care about that anymore like I got there I got the championship and it wasn't what I thought it was going to be and so now like the play is to accumulate power and live in New York and just play basketball. Cause that's, you know, the, not everyone can do what Kevin Durant did, which is spend your entire life playing basketball. And he doesn't, he doesn't date anyone and he doesn't have children because he says like that would detract from basketball. <laughs> like, so mm. he, he plays basketball, he works on his businesses, he smokes weed and that's pretty much it. Everyone <laughs> says, and he, and he goes on Twitter, like that's all he does in his life. And it's a very empty existence that yes, you get the camaraderie of playing basketball, but other than that, you know, other it's, it's a very lonely life in a way for Kevin Durant. So that's the same idea is like, it didn't bring him the happiness he deserved. And so we just got angry at the world because he was really, really unhappy, yeah. even though he got everything that he thought and was told that he's supposed to want. And it just it made him incredibly unhappy during his time in Golden State. And Golden State, I know they're going to make the championship again this year. Like, they could have won championships for, like, eight years straight or at least played in the championship for eight years straight if they had just liked each other. And Kevin Durant is like, this is, re this is making me really unhappy and I'd rather leave and play in Brooklyn than stay in Golden State and win a lot of championships. That reminds me of... Uh a short story that Thomas, Thomas Mann, the German author wrote um, called disillusionment, where it's about this guy who talks about everything and how everything that's happened to him in his life, 
he suffered from anticlimax. Um, mm-hmm. Like there was even a, a, he was caught in a house fire as a child and found his way out. So did his family, thank God. But outside, while the house was burning down, he was saying, is this all there is to it? Um, that what he imagined um, of being in a house when it was on fire and losing a house and what he experienced, you know, the, the terror that he felt imagining it and the reality of it while experiencing of it were two completely th- different things. And then he equated it to love was unrequited love when he was um, rejected, um, when he um, proposed to the woman that he loved and she said no. Even then he was like, well, this is the worst heartbreak imaginable and what of it? You know, it's not as bad as I thought. You know, it goes back to our, this brings us back to our original question of, you know, cynics. I mean, cynics will say, you know, it's it's like it's not going to be what you think it's going to be, and um, you know, and I I love ta- teaching that to to high school students because I, I think it becomes a matter of expectation, and sometimes our we let our imaginations take us, you know, to build up like oh, what the joy would be. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell you this, you know, I was a Cardinal fan from since 1963. If the Cardinals ever won a Super Bowl in my lifetime, I'm sure I'll faint. <laughs> uh, and I'm I'm sure of it and happily. I mean, I'm sure I'll like foam and flail on the on the den carpet. Um I'm sure I'll do backflips in my mind. I mean, I'm sure I will you know, there's just no doubt. I haven't even really even thought of what it would feel like. I haven't given myself that, you know, kind of um, freedom to do that. So, I, But I just know, I mean, after all this, if that ever happened, I'd just be, and I would never forget it, you know? I mean, I would, right? I mean, what would you do, yeah. Joe? What? So this is tough because, like, if you know how would i experience that i mean would i be sitting here in my room watching it on my computer by myself because i live in georgia right there are yeah. cardinals fans near me or you know would i would if they were in the super bowl would i travel go back to arizona and say you know i have family there and yeah and 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 watch it there with friends and family i mean maybe depending on you know how my semester so like I, I was as you were talking about. I was thinking about what would that be like because I could see watching it, you know, being here doing, you know, maybe watching it live streaming or whatever, being very excited and celebrating, but also very, you know, like, all right, it's just me here, you know. Um, I think I would be, I would be ecstatic. I would, I would try to embrace and enjoy the moment, knowing that it, you know, that it, that how fleeting it is and how it may never happen again. But afterwards, it would. Be like what now? What? <laughs> Especially you know? when the next man who gets on your site says, "We still should fire Cliff King." Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> because that dude is definitely going to be out there saying that right. for sure. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, if the Chargers ever win the championship, I'm going to spit at my TV. That That's mine. Um, <laughs> I, I picked you to be a loser. You let me down. No, it's Dean Spanos. It's Dean Spanos that does okay. it for me. It, 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 that's, that's the thing that does it for me. If, if he leaves, I'll at least consider it. Because the Chargers are fun. I'm glad. Mm. Like, my... My friends who still root for the Chargers, I'm like, you have a fun team. Just enjoy it. Like, whatever. (laughs) You play in the same division as the greatest dynasty of my lifetime non-Patriots category. Like, it's okay. Just just enjoy it. Maybe you'll win one division title. Maybe you'll have a couple playoff games. Just just enjoy rooting for the Chargers. So what is your favorite team now? Uh, For football? Yeah. so I've been on a long journey of trying to figure this thing out. And I say, like, I, I love telling the story that I grew up a Charger fan and the greatest team, the, the two greatest teams they've ever had were defeated by Tom Brady. And right. one time by the Jets when they, when right. they won 12 straight regular season games. Right. And so after that, like, I have family that lives in Seattle. So I'm like, oh, the Legion of Boom is fun. They got ended by Tom Brady. Then the Chargers left. I'm like, the Falcons are fun. They're a really fun team to watch. Matt Ryan's on my fantasy team. I like the Falcons. Boom, Tom Brady ends them in historic fashion. (laughs) And then I kind of disassociated from football for for a little bit. I guess it was only a few years. But, like, I kind of disassociated a bit. And then um, that year that Patrick Mahomes won the MVP and like the saints were averaging like 30 points a game. And the Rams had Todd Gurley who still, maybe it's because of my emotional connection there. Like Todd Gurley is still like one of my favorite players in the NFL because of that crazy two year run he had where he had like 38 touchdowns and 4,000 yards of offense. So like that year I really started engaging with football again and because of that, Patrick Mahomes is like my favorite player in the world. And I think it's just because he brought me back into football after years of like disassociating because I didn't watch Chargers games on Sundays and I was in high school. So I'm like, I'll do other things instead of spending seven hours watching football. And so I think because of that, like the only football jersey I own is Patrick Mahomes. And I've like invested in the Chiefs just because that team kind of brought me back into football, but then doing the podcast stuff, like I realized it's more fun to just enjoy the greatness of the sport and just talk about the sport in that way. Yeah. Um, so I, I just decided I don't rooting for a team. Isn't my thing. I think I did it. And the chargers kind of like the matrix thing I was saying earlier, like it kind of pointed out, like it's, it's dumb to invest so much of your emotional stability into a team and, and hoping that it ends up turning into something good. It's more fun. Like there, there's a whole psychology about this too. And there's a great book written about the, it's based around New York Mets fans, but like it's the idea of teams that communally lose people form a bond around each other. And ultimately that's all fandom is, is like a bond between people in a community and finding, finding a sense of community, like all humans want to do. And so I like the, I like the community of the Padres. I like making, you know, I was making content for the NFL, the podcast and on Instagram and all that stuff for years. And then the pandemic kind of happened and I just like threw myself deep into football, but Yeah, I I guess when people ask, I say, like, well, if I'm going to, like, have a rooting interest, like, I got really emotional when the Chiefs had that comeback against the Bills. I was like, wow, 
I didn't think I had invested in this in this player in this story. <laughs> I never I thought like, I could wow. love again until I met the chief. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, because they were down, and I was like, this is so disappointing because they they should be able to win. And then it was the most magical football game ever. Like, I mean, some people are saying it's the greatest football game in forty years between the the Bills and the Chiefs this year, and. You know, watching that, I was like, oh, I didn't realize how much I really, really wanted the Chiefs to win that so that they could go to the Super Bowl. And then they just blew it the next week and gagged all over themselves and whatever. But it was it was really cool in the moment because it looked like the Chiefs were going to go to a third straight Super Bowl. If you if you count out the coin toss in, in 2018, they could have gone to four straight Super Bowls. They were the number one seed that year. They would have possibly won two, or if not two, they win one and win like more regular season games than anyone in a four-year stretch since like the 2000s, early 2000s Patriots. I'm like, that's really cool that we're living through a modern dynasty and no one seems to recognize it, that we're living through the Patriot, the first era of the Patriots all over again. Now, maybe Kansas City doesn't last for 20 years like the Patriots do, but like, They've won six straight division titles and hosted four straight AFC championship games, which has never happened before. And like, I guess I look at that. I'm like, wow, that's really cool. But I just love football altogether. Like I, I thought because I love the chiefs, I would hate Lamar Jackson. and I love Lamar Jackson. I thought I would hate Josh Allen. Cause I said in August of 2020, that the bills would replace Josh Allen with Dak Prescott after going six and 10 and just being incredibly wrong. <laughs> about Josh Allen. I thought I'd hate Josh Allen for it. And I love Josh Allen. So I don't know. Like, I guess I just love football at this point. And I scream appreciate greatness, except for Tom Brady. Like we're really good at appreciating Tom Brady's <laughs> greatness. We just can't appreciate anyone else's greatness for some reason. <laughs> you should write the book, How My Fandom Was Crushed by Tom Brady. <laughs> <laughs> I got to be... The sign of goats is sometimes the people you prevent from winning championships. Like in any non-Patriots era, the Packers would be one of the great dynasties in the history of the NFL. And nobody talks about the Packers. Everyone calls the Packers chokers and disappointments. And the Packers would be the greatest dynasty in modern football, if not for a world where the Patriots existed in. It's right. it's so strange because the Patriots stopped everyone from winning, and it's so crazy how that's worked out. Like, like yeah, Tom Brady won half the won half the Super Bowls in, that were played during his career, or something like that. Yeah, like I mean, he's won seven championships. He's been to eleven or ten. Let's see, he's been to eleven. Is it eleven? I think he only lost three, though, right? Oh, is he, it? He lost. Okay. He lost the two to Eli, the one, and to then Nick the Philly Bowles. one. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess it's 10 in 22 years. Yeah. I mean, it's the Patriots as a whole are so fascinating. Obviously, Walter, you're up there. I just, the, the Patriots have been so fascinating for so many years. And it's interesting how these things come to an end. Like, I'm working on a, a project about the Spurs and that same idea is like it ended because they alienated Kawhi Leonard and it was just over. And the Patriots alienated Tom Brady and it was just over. Like they're, they're still really good. It's just the sustained winning is just, it's gone at this point. It's weird yeah. how that, how that worked out, but yeah, yeah. that's, yeah. that's my long winding 
my Facebook status of it's complicated when it comes to fandom. <laughs> right. That's, that's how I describe it. It's, it's complicated. Cause like even well, in basketball, I grew up rooting for the Lakers, but the, this was the decade where the Lakers were really, really bad <laughs> for uh, every year. They were at the top of the lottery. And I loved all the baby Lakers, like, like Jordan Clarkson and, and Larry Nance and all of them. And then they traded all of them. I'm like, well, I don't like this team anymore. You traded all the players that I was rooting for as a child. So yeah, right. I, just, I really love rooting for losers. Now I root for the ultimate loser of the Sacramento Kings. <laughs> you know, so I think, you know, this Kyle, who's, over the last year and a half, become my second favorite team in the NFL. Uh, I'd like you to share it here real quick because I know who it is, but I'd like you to be the person to talk about it. The Detroit Lions. Mm-hmm. I mean, I am so fascinated that Dan Campbell, I think, is awesome. And they've done such a – I mean, I thought their draft was tremendous – and the moves they made, and still can't believe the Vikings letting them come up to take uh, James and Williams, um, just up, up from 32 up to where the Vikings were is just mind-boggling to me. But, you know, I, from, from the absolute worst team in the NFL to see them try to climb out of the the doldrums, the way the Cardinals have, have done in the last, you know, three years captivates me. It fascinates me. And I'm not, you know, I, I'm not entirely confident in Jared Goff, but I respect the heck out of him. And uh, boy, does he own the Cardinals. <laughs> Our number. Yeah. Yeah, you 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 convinced me to join the Colts fandom, Walter. I know you've been doing that for a couple of years now because I uh, I still I say Lamar Jackson is the most disrespected player in the NFL, and I'd still even say even though he's plenty great, the most underrated player in the NFL is Darius Leonard. Like that, he's absolutely ridiculous at middle linebacker. Yeah, and now they weird. now they have my BC boy uh, Matty Ice. Ryan, mm-hmm. um, I think that's going to be a fascinating team to watch as well. Um, you know, I love, love the running back. Oh, my God. Taylor, yeah. Taylor is a stud. And, uh, yeah, uh, Darius Leonard is a modern-day linebacker, can do it all. Now, he can cover running backs out of the backfield, <laughs> okay? So there are guys who – you, you can keep on the field. Um, so, but yeah, the Colts are doing things right. I, I think that they've got a lot of key pieces in place. And, but that AFC is going to be, oh my goodness. I mean, mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's just so formidable. Um, you know, the number of teams that have a decent chance. I mean, all four in the NFC West. But they'll be knocking each other off. That's going to be an interesting um, development to see who emerges. And you know, I like the Chargers. So, you know, um, going back to the Colts, there's something about them that fascinates me. Just more from like a roster building strategy perspective, and and like you know, you see what they've done. They they've you know under uh, it's Chris Ballard, if I'm not mistaken, their GM. Has, yeah. they've built a really really great young roster in terms of. You know, a lot of great 
you know, players like Quentin Nelson and, and Taylor and, and Leonard and, and such. And, uh, but their, their approach towards the quarterback position has been really interesting, right? Bringing in veteran after veteran, trying, it seems like one, you know, Phil Rivers right. and Carson Wentz and then Matt Ryan. And, and like there, I have wondered, and I think I even kind of pause, pose this question with a friend of mine who's a football fan. It's like, you know, the, the, there, there's typically the way you build a team is you, you keep taking a shot at that first round quarterback until you hit it. And then when you've got that guy, you build the roster around him and then you try to win. That's the conventional model, right? right? And I'm fascinated by teams that are in general in sports when a team tries to look for a market inefficiency, kind of like, you know, how the whole money ball thing, the Oakland A's and where they, everyone else was looking at certain things and they looked at on base percentage and, and prioritize that and, you know, so on and so forth. And right. like, I'm just wondering is the Colts with the Colts, with what they've done, taking swings at veteran quarterbacks, but not investing heavy draft capital into someone since Andrew Luck. Um, is that just how the cards have kind of been dealt to them? Or is this an intentional strategy that where everyone else is zigging, they're trying to zag where like everyone else is spending all these. Hang on just a second. Sorry. I had an alarm on <laughs> go off. I had to shut down. Uh, um, it, when in so I'm wondering if they're zigging when everyone else is zagging. Like you know, in a league where everyone keeps taking shots with first round picks on quarterbacks, have they decided we are going to build a roster and we're going to find veterans who are later in their career or are on a contract that isn't at the app that has aged enough that they're it's not at the top of the market, right? Like Matt Ryan, when yeah. he signed his contract was, was a big contract, but he's deep enough into it that it's a bargain. Even Carson Wentz. Now, you know, they, they jettisoned him, but like he had signed his contract long enough back that it was still below the current market. Right. right. Um, so I'm just wondering, and if your thoughts on this, yeah. is this an intentional strategy that they're trying to capture market inefficiency by going after just, a string of veteran quarterbacks and not wasting the draft capital on trying to find that guy in the draft, but instead find a proven guy and that we're going to see them keep doing that. Or, or are they going to, or is it just a coincidence and they will, when they have a pick worthy of it, go after a quarterback. Yeah, I've had a definitive answer on this for years, but I want to hear what Walter thinks of it first before I, I think of my answer towards it. Well, the Colts, if they care about, what I think, <laughs> which brings us back. Um, Touche. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if they would, but I'm now on their side after being so absolutely pissed off that they were able to go from Peyton Manning to Andrew Luck. I thought that was one of the biggest injustices of all times, how they tanked that whole season. But then the the luck thing kind of, you know, imploded on them, which is kind of bizarre. And so I'm fascinated by Joe's theory uh, because, you know, they've been good enough not to be like a perennial top 10 pick in the, in the NFL draft. So they haven't found themselves again since the luck deal in a position to draft one of the best quarterbacks in the draft nor have they identified any young quarterbacks that they thought they could take later on. 
and build the thing around. So I think he's absolutely right um, that, you know, that they decided let's do the best with what we have and, um, you know, take the best players available. You know, they've been crushing drafts for a while now. I mean, that, that draft class with Darius Leonard is one of the greatest draft classes ever, ever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it didn't include the quarterback and, They've yeah. suffered because of it somewhat. I mean, they've still been good. They've still been contenders for their division every year, and, you know. But uh, yeah, now they have Matt Ryan, and you know he could be this year's Matthew Stafford. I mean, it's the analogies there, are pretty, you know, comparable. I mean, on a team that was mostly a perennial loser, but was always up there, and and Kyle knows. We've just discussed Matt Ryan so often. I mean, I'm still amazed at if you look back, Matt Ryan up until last year was uh, the only quarterback over the last 10 years to pass for more than 4,000 yards every year. That's pretty dang good. You know, so, yeah, it's fascinating how you build your roster and how you put things together. And if Ryan's a missing piece and he can, you know, just be do his job and be a point guard. Um, who knows? So, what do you think? Kyle? In, yeah, I, I've thought about this a while because, um, you know, it's funny. We, I first began Take It Easy as a podcast, like doing really poor recordings, like in the summer of 2019 after I um, had finished high school. And so, there was like not a lot going on. It's like a lot of baseball and NBA free agency had passed. And the first big story that we actually got to tackle was the Andrew Luck retirement. And so I, I found Andrew Luck the most fascinating like figure in sports of the last five years. Cause the man had more passing yards in his first six seasons than Dan Marino. And he just retired and we didn't hear from him for two and a half years. Just the most shocking retirement since Barry Sanders. And we just didn't hear from him at all. He didn't do any interviews. He wasn't seen in public. Just nobody heard from him in two and a half years after he retired until he showed up at a high school in Colorado and then was on the national championship broadcast for college football. We just, we hadn't seen Andrew Luck in two and a half years. And so the, the, the thing that the to, you were talking about how the Colts are trying to exploit uh, market inefficiencies, Joe, I think where the Colts have done things differently is that they always value financial flexibility is that every single year when we hit free agency, it's always the Colts are top five in dollars <laughs> available to spend in free agency every year. And whenever they sign big contracts, it's usually one year deals. It's, one year for Philip Rivers. It's one year for Devin Funchess, even though Devin Funchess got hurt and didn't really play much. People forget he got like $14 million from the Colts. It's a one-year contract for Justin Houston um, to, to play edge rusher for the Colts. And so they found value in that. And in, in we always prioritize financial flexibility. And that's a really good idea, except when it comes to the quarterback position. When it comes to the quarterback position is so unique to the NFL that you want to have the person that you can pay $45 million a year to. And they had that in Andrew Luck. Like they, they, they had the thing figured out. I still say like 
they were they were on path to be a dynasty. That last year of Andrew Luck um, in 2018, people forget that the Colts started one and five during that season, went nine and one the rest of the year, won a playoff game against the Texans, and then lost just because it was snowing in Kansas City to an MVP Patrick Mahomes. Like that's just no shame in losing that one. And that season in 2018, during the nine and one stretch, the Colts were number one in QBR, number one graded offensive line, number one ranked defense, number one in scoring in the NFL. Like they were, they were the best team in the NFL for 10 weeks of the season, only behind the Kansas city chiefs and, and maybe the, the saints that year who were really good and lost to the Rams on the, the pass interference call. So that was just the end of Andrew Luck's career though. And, and they just didn't have the quarterback to compete after that. I still think they've been a disappointment over the last three years. The fact that they didn't like fall apart though, and I guess four years now, it's been four years since Andrew Luck. It's, it's been strange that they, they've been as disappointing as they have been. And maybe that's just like last year. And the fact that like Rodrigo Blankenship missed a field goal and a, first and goal at the one they got stopped four times against the bills in the playoffs in 2020. Like they, I still think they could have, should have, would have beat Buffalo in that 2020 playoff game as a seven seed. And they just, they, they left like 13 points on the board in the first half. And so the, the Colts have that strategy down pat and now they're trying to do it at the quarterback. Cause like every year it's been the best strategy for the Colts is, mm-hmm. you know, Every year they've got, except for the Jacoby Brissett year, every year they've gotten the best quarterback that they can. Now they should have gotten Tom Brady instead of Phillip Rivers, but like the the strategy was there. Like Phillip Rivers was better than the quarterbacks they could realistically get in the draft because they couldn't go get Tua and they couldn't go get Herbert. So so realistically, Phillip Rivers was the best option on the board. Last year, you could argue Carson Wentz was the best option on the board. Now, in hindsight, they could have given up two firsts and gone and gotten Justin Fields, um, which is what the Giants did basically with one pick above them, or, or the Bears did one pick above them in the draft. So, like, if they had to do it again, I'm sure they wouldn't have traded for Carson Wentz in February. But um, Frank Reich, like, advocated, like, I, I can fix Carson. Like, this is my guy. I can fix it. And then the reason they got rid of him this year was Jim Irsay said, we are not bringing him back to, mm-hmm. to the team no matter what. And, and they had to dump him to Washington. Fortunately, Washington took his entire contract, but they, they had he, to dump him there. He wasn't – I mean, he was he was not bad for the – I mean, I know he had some games, but, like, the overall body of work wasn't bad. But I, So I think there were some other things oh, yeah, culturally – it's been reported now. Like, so the, the anti-vax thing was kind of bothering people in the organization mm. and um, yeah. he didn't take coaching well, even from Frank Reich. Okay. And so it just kind of like soured the appetite within, right. within the locker room for Carson Wentz. So I want to, there's, there's, to me, there's two questions with this. There is like, there's the question of, is this actually an intentional strategy they're taking? Because like, you know, like, you know, the argument against as well, you know, they've played the, you know, the hand that's dealt to them, but teams move up to get quarterbacks, even when, you know, I mean, the year when the, the Rams took Justin Fields, everyone thought they're not getting a quarterback this year because the, they're not in the draft, but they don't, they weren't in the position to do so where with where they were drafting, but it ended up working out. And certainly teams can and do move up aggressively if they want that guy. 
Um, so, I, you know, and part of the part is also they've traded away picks to get those veteran quarterbacks. That's part of why they, so I'm, so the, the, the first question to me is, is this an actual intentional strategy where they're saying we are not going to pursue a rookie quarterback. We are actually going to build our team and we are going to, if we have to have a revolving door of veteran quarterbacks, is that an intentional strategy? And then the second question, I think you were also kind of, uh, you know, addressing is there's a, if that is the strategy, there's a whole other question of, is it a viable strategy? <laughs> is yeah. it one that will work? So I, I, do you think okay. it is an intentional strategy? I know it's an intentional strategy at other positions. Like that mm-hmm. Ballard's been doing this for like five years where he signs people to one year contracts and sometimes mm-hmm. pays them more money on the front end of one year deals in order to incentivize people to take mm-hmm. one year deals. So right. it's intentional at other positions it was intentional in at least two of the four cases this time nice. around. So w- with Philip Rivers, it was intentionally done. With Carson Wentz, it was intentionally done. I don't know about Matt Ryan, and I don't know about Jacoby Brissett, whether or not those were intentionally done post-Andrew Luck. Well, I think, you know, Brissett was, that was their backup quarterback, you know, when, when Luck retired. So that's who they had to go with. I don't know. I don't remember what their other options were. I think because they went with him for two years, didn't they? No, they. they so they, they had just him go with the, him for one. So they had him the year that Andrew Luck had um, shoulder surgery. Okay, that's um, right. But they, but they didn't have him for uh, that. That was 2017, and then the 2019 year after Luck retired. So it seems so, like that yeah. was the Brissett years were one because of Luck, one year because Luck was injured, then another year. Uh, simply because they were caught off guard with the retirement is what it sounds like, right? Yes. One year yeah. because of injury, another year. I think Brian Hoyer also started like three games during that post-luck retirement year. Okay. Yeah, what's interesting to me about the luck situation was the influence that Bruce Arians might have had on his career. <laughs> Oh, I still I mean, say that um, Ryan oh Grinson. My... I forgot. I forgot to add this in there. Ryan Grinson, the old general manager, should be arrested for crimes against football for destroying Andrew Luck's body by refusing to draft an offensive lineman for <sighs> five years. <laughs> well, it's tremendous irony because you know uh, the Steelers moved on from Arians in fear of him shortening Big Ben's career, mm-hmm. and then course you know if you watch those the the Colts overachieved with Arians he did a great job as interim head coach and you know but it was a pyrrhic at a pyrrhic cost because I mean um Andrew Luck took a pounding and a half uh and um you know I I think that as an initiation that might have you know made him a little leery uh you know and i don't know if he knew better you know, he still tried to run in the nfl the way he ran at stanford and you know and then of course arians gets to arizona and, um boy poor carson palmer i mean uh he suffered it all i mean and ended his career with a broken arm in london um and uh, even Drew Stanton couldn't stay healthy. Uh, and we had to play with Ryan Lindley in a playoff game, fresh off the practice squad from your charges. 
And, um, San Diego State. Yeah, at San Diego State. Yep. yep. Ryan Lindley <laughs> was, was the original guy there. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think to that point, like Andrew Luck, I, I'm, I'm someone's got to make a documentary on Andrew Luck because it's just so fascinating how that all went down. Andrew Luck's also a guy who, like, was an architect who happened to be born to a dad who, you know, was running NFL Europe and had connections to the old XFL and all that stuff. Like just happened to be born into a football family was an architect from Stanford who happened to be born into a football family. And the Colts would have been competing with the chiefs every single year. I I firmly believe like they would have been competing every year up there with the chiefs. They would have been running the AFC South for the past four years. If Andrew Luck had kept playing. And I think the strategy since then has been, they haven't deviated from their one-year contract strategy um, for the quarterback position. And because all of them haven't worked out the way they intended, it's looking like a bit of a failure because, you know, you had Leonard and uh, Quentin Nelson and Kenny Moore all on rookie contracts and and didn't really do much with it. So I think the Colts are trying to, to – find value in the margins in terms of always valuing financial flexibility and not doing the boomer bust strategy like the Rams are doing right now where the Rams and like the saints did for years when they were competing for a championship of maximize the two, three year window and just spend ridiculous amounts of money and worry about the rest later, you know, cause Drew Brees can retire and Sean Payton can retire and someone else will have to deal with the mess that they have to clean up. So I think the Colts are, are trying to find market value there. And at the same time, it doesn't work unless you have Andrew Luck as your quarterback. And Chris Ballard comes from the Andy Reid um, tree where like he was the general manager in Kansas City, but Andy Reid had final say on roster decisions. And um, Chris Ballard kind of comes from that line of like, we don't have the quarterback locked in, but we have to value flexibility in order to compete at the highest level. And when Ballard was in Kansas City, lo and behold, they kept getting eliminated in the second round every year with Alex Smith or losing a wild card game to Marcus Mariota. Like they, this this happened every year. There's only so close it can get you without having the the, the star quarterback locked in. Of course, you know though the, the Stafford championship with the Rams is going to cause everyone to think that or many people think that you can do that. And, and maybe you can, I don't know. I mean, it's, it, you know, they, they call it a copycat league. It's going to be interesting to see how the Stafford, you know, thing kind of influences decisions in the coming years. Does yeah, do the Colts stick with that because they think, well, they did it and we, we just haven't had the right guy yet. And Matt Ryan will now be that guy. Mm-hmm. The, the team with the most game-changing players usually ends up being at the end of the line, winning the championship. And for the Rams, they were the rare team that uh, they had game-changing players at non-quarterback positions. They had Cooper mm-hmm. Cup, who's one of the few wide receivers who can change a game simply by getting the ball. I think, what was it, this talent around? It's why I think the Cardinals will be good enough to make the playoffs next year is because they have at least a base level of talent that – you know, 10 other teams in the NFC don't really have. Mm-hmm. So in that way, like the Rams, great exception. Donald, who's the greatest interior defensive player ever. And Jalen Ramsey, who's the best corner in the NFL and Cooper cup, who's the best wide receiver. And they just needed not Jared Goff and John Walford at quarterback. 
they they were the exception where they just needed a above average quarterback instead of Jared Goff. Yeah. I mean, and, and just to make a quick point of that, I, from my years of watching football, I've seen a lot of teams that they just needed to get, uh, you know, lucky enough to get in the playoffs and have a, a quarterback who gets hot. You just need a puncher's chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and sometimes football, like you said, when everyone's so close to each other, football can be random and strategy mm-hmm. changes in the playoffs. Like, the I, I view the 49ers as this great exception across the last 10 years because they've been to a Super Bowl, two, two conference championship games in three years, despite the fact that they've had subpar quarterback play. Mm-hmm. And that's really, really hard to do in the NFL without some sort of strategic advantage. It's really interesting how that works out because strategy does change towards the playoffs. For sure, yeah. Yeah. And the other part is uh, I, I've noticed because of Andrew Luck and Cam Newton that uh, teams you, teams strategize in the regular season different. Like Buffalo doesn't let Josh Allen run the ball until it's the playoffs. <laughs> like they, they don't have a running game and they willingly sacrifice in the regular season not having a good running game. Uh, for the playoffs, like Josh Allen in the game against the Chiefs was their leading rusher with like 13 carries for 59 yards, which wasn't great, but they just said, Josh Allen is our number one running back. We just can't use him in the regular season because it'll destroy (laughs) his body. (laughs) That makes sense. Yeah. Games changed there. So yeah, I appreciate it, Joe. It's always good to to chat. Obviously you're a sociology professor. So we take macro (laughs) level issues sometimes, but sometimes we have dumb football conversations. You know, I, I think maybe one of my greatest accomplishments in life, aside from my family, is my ability to uh, both exist in spaces of academia and spaces of talking football. You know, just yeah, that have a notable lack of academia to it. Right. So no, it's it's always a pleasure to hang out with you and Walter. I know Walter kind of had had to had to bail there, uh, but. Um, yeah, it's it's always a pleasure to hang out with you guys. The conversations definitely jump all over the place, and that that's what makes it so interesting. For sure, I got two podcasts worth of content out of it. So. <laughs> I was wondering, is this going to be two podcasts? I'm like, seems like going to have yeah. to be yeah. close to two and a half hours. It's going to have to be. <laughs> <laughs> what well, flew by? Absolutely. Thank you again. Much appreciated, Joe. Absolutely, my pleasure. All right chat with you again sometime soon. All right. Take care.